and welcome to the April 2010 podcast of Ordinary Means. You found us on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com or else somebody slipped you an MP3 while you weren't looking and here you are listening to us. Uh, I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hey, Matt. And uh, we're here this month uh, talking about something um, that's been on both of our hearts. We're going to take a little break over the past few months. We've been looking at the relationship between Christ and culture. Uh, much of that has revolved around the uh, two-kingdom debate, uh, whether or not uh, Christ is king of this earth or whether there is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth and how the two relate and how much the Christian be seeking to transform culture. And that's been a, uh, a very fruitful discussion. We've had a number of guests on. We have uh, plans to have some more guests on. Uh, but Matt and I are going to take a little break from that this month, and we'd like to talk about the intersection of idolatry and prayer. Uh, this is something that, from a number of different angles, as Matt and I have uh, talked together um, just recently, uh, we've seen that it's it's God's been working in our own lives, through our own preaching, through some of the mm-hmm. books that we've been reading. And so we want to begin to talk a little bit about this. And I guess uh, what I'll do, Matt, if you don't mind, I'm going to go, go ahead and start out here. Mm-hmm. Um, go for it. And this, I think this stemmed for me, as you know, over the past months, we, we've been reading the uh, A Praying Life um, by Paul Miller, and we've talked about prayer. We had the book uh, discussion, oh, this was back uh, probably six months ago now that we had the book discussion, mm-hmm. and highly, well, we re- highly recommended books, that yeah. book. Yep. And so, so prayer has been something that's been sort of on the in the zone and something that we've been thinking about. Um, and also, uh, idolatry, uh, particularly, I think, over the past few years with uh, Keller beginning to write uh, a lot more books. Um, I think this whole topic of Christian idolatry and what that looks like and how that isn't, uh, you know, isn't just something the pagans did. Right. Uh, I was re- interesting. I was reading in uh, G.I. Williamson, um, I think. Most of us might be familiar with his uh, study guide to the Shorter Catechism. And I was reading, actually reading through that recently, and he's got a whole little thing in there uh, in his section on prayer uh, where he talks about how uh, prayer can be idolatrous. And it's not just, um, you know, idolatry isn't just what the pagans did. I think that's. I think uh, what's, Williamson's point there is what that the things we pray for reveal our heart, kind of thing. Well, I think what he what he's doing is he's coming at it. He's about to get into use um, the confession. The confession goes through the commandments, and then it goes through, uh, and then it goes through the Lord's prayer. And the so catechism. he's yeah. he's in that transition between the commandments and prayer, and he you know he wants to point out that this is. Um, this is how the Christian life is lived out. And so there's that, that crossover there uh, with the commandments. And he just in this particular section, he's just reiterating what he said before, which is um, that the idolatry that's spoken of in the, in the commandments is not just making whittling little wooden things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's real and it's lived out. And, and that's something that I think all of us can appreciate Keller for 
yes. that he he's he's drawn that out. At least he's been the spokesman for that. I know there are a number of uh, voices uh, behind Keller that he's reading uh, mm-hmm. that are that are emphasizing some of these lessons. Um, for me, though, I, these two came together just recently as I was preaching through the Book of John, and I began to see a theme in the Book of John. Now, you may or not may not be familiar with this, but John uses uh, the term uh, belief in a couple different senses. Uh, he talks in, in John chapter 2 when he goes and he cleanses the temple, casts everybody out. It says that many were many saw him and many believed, and then in the very next verse, he says, uh, Jesus says, um, I'm sorry, John says of Jesus, uh, but Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew mm. what mm-hmm. was in man's heart. And you mm. see this theme recur over and over again in John, and John is drawing this distinction between belief and belief, between mm. taking Jesus as Jesus and taking Jesus, you know, taking Jesus as Messiah and taking mm-hmm. Jesus as, wow, he's really cool. He can do lots of signs and miracles. I like mm. that. We should follow him around, see what we can get out of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just just recently finished going through John chapter 4, where Jesus talks with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. And this is a big deal, uh, because the Samaritan woman is a, uh, well, number one, she's a Samaritan. Number two, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And you see that when the disciples show back, show up, you know, they leave him at the well, um, He's tired, he's weary, he's thirsty. They leave him at the well. They say, Rabbi, we're going to go get some Samaritan takeout. We'll be right back. Um, (laughs) When they show up, the first thing they say before they even say, hey, you know, look at this pastrami roll the Samaritans have. It's great here. They they get back and they say, Jesus, what are you doing talking to this woman? Mm. And they're just utterly shocked because, number one, she's a Samaritan, but um, which in, in Jewish rabbinical code, you know, talking to a Samaritan was was to talk to an unclean person. Mm -hmm. To talk to a Samaritan woman was to speak to an an continually unclean person. Mm -hmm. And uh, she takes this as her cue to leave. She runs back into the city, leaves her, you know, leaves her water pitcher, which is a sign, you know, she's left behind um, her her former trust. and, uh, And now she goes and seeks the men of the city. And uh, and says, "Hey, come here, this guy who told me all the bad stuff I've ever done." <laughs> Which I love that because you know what's happened. God has just torn down her idols. Mm-hmm. Jesus has. Uh, Jesus comes to her and he says, um, "Compassionately, very compassionately." Compassionately, he says, "Let me he give says, you a little I know water. what you're looking. For. I know what you're looking for." Now, now, Matt, you've, in all that sin, you've done. I know you've done enough counseling to answer this question for me. Okay. All right. Based on what you know about the Samaritan woman, what Jesus reveals to us about the Samaritan woman, she's had five husbands, and the one she's living with now is not her husband. Mm-hmm. What is this woman's idol? I'm going to guess, ding, 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 security. Hmm. She's, she's looking for somebody to... Yeah, to be her, to be her hope, to be her stability, yep. and and the right. guys yep. aren't working. Mm-hmm. Which of course they could never, they could never fill that place that only God can. But precisely. But the interesting thing is, is that Jesus has given her all this talk. He hasn't said anything about being the Messiah yet. He's given her all this talk about, hey, if you come to me, 
I can give you what you need. And mm. so then when he says, go get your husband, her answer is, I have no husband. And the sort of the hidden meaning there is, is very possibly, but I'll take you. Mm. And it's fascinating because what Je- Jesus is asking her to be his bride mm. in the spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. She is very likely thinking, I'm going to ditch the guy that's at the house now because all he does is sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. And I'm going to take this guy that says he's going to hook up my plumbing so I can have some running water. And I don't have to, and this goes back to what you said, security. So I don't have to come down to the well and be shamed. Mm, By only being able to come at noon. By only being able to come at noon. Because if I come at other times, then people will remind me of my past and... But the fascinating thing about this woman is Jesus reveals this to her. He says to her, uh, she goes, you know, I know Messiah is coming. He goes, I am the Messiah, which Mm -hmm. he never says to a Mm -hmm. Jew. Mm -hmm. Jesus never says that in a Jewish context. He just speaks plainly to the Samaritans. They require no signs. Mm. And she runs into the city, says, come see this guy who could tell me all about, told me all about the bad things I've ever done. And they all come running. Now, I, I, I was saying in church, I said, you know, if, if somebody ran in here and said, hey, there's a guy outside, he can tell you all the bad things you've ever done, you know, we'd be out the back door. <laughs> in our car. the back door, exactly. <laughs> but they come Unlock running. the back door. And they urge Jesus to stay. And, um, and he stays for two days. And it's this, it's the first success, first really successful thing that's happened in his ministry. He's just been in Jerusalem, and Nicodemus comes to him when? By night, not the middle of the day, or none of that. And Jesus all but tells Nicodemus, buddy, you don't get it. Mm. You are the teacher of Israel, and all you think of me is that I'm just some some prophet. Some new teacher. Some new teacher. Well, and what's interesting about that is that um, I think it gives us different insight that interaction with Jesus and the woman at the well gives us not less of a sense of the holiness of God or the heinousness of sin, but it gives us more of a sense that when we look at someone like ourselves or a non-believer who's caught in a pattern of sin, many times of their own doing, Mm -hmm. that we look at them when we go, there's a hunger in your heart that you think this sin which you're doing because you believe the promises that some idol has made to you um, you think this sin will make you happy and I think that it, it this idolatry focus and, and really the woman at the well uh, it, it's changed my thinking dramatically because I now want to find out what are the what are the false things I've put my hopes in this woman knew she'd been through five guys and that, and um, she knew there wasn't any hope there, that there wasn't any security there. She was hungry. The Samaritans were hungry, and I think we have to have the eyes to look around at people around us in patterns of sin, e- even heinous sin, and go, oh, you're so hungry and thirsty. I can see it. And that's such a different stance towards um, ourselves, towards people in our churches. If we're leaders in the church and we're annoyed by people who sin, 
Um, and it's particular, particularly to non-Christians that we can look at them when we go, oh, there's that God-shaped vacuum in your heart and you're trying to fill it. I, I get you because you're like me. Having that compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to come back to John to John four, but Go ahead. you and yeah. I you and I were talking before we started recording. We were talking about Romans fourteen, mm-hmm. and I think that ties right into what you're saying. Is because in in Romans fourteen you've got this comparison between uh, between the weak and the strong. One man eats all things; the other man can only eat vegetables. Mm-hmm. And Paul's uh, Paul's advice to the Romans is in a situation like that. Neither does the guy who can eat everything need to judge the vegan, and neither does the vegan need... Tempting as it is. As tempting as it is. Well, or, you know, and I think uh, somebody pointed out to me recently that it's it's the vegan often seems who's spending more time judging the man who eats everything, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at least the, the state of our culture today. Right. And... What Paul says is neither you guys need to stop judging one another on these issues because, and this is this is a phrase that should just strike us like a ton of bricks. Is he mm. says because God has accepted them, mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. God has accepted both the man who can eat everything and the guy who can only eat vegetables. Right on the work of based on the work work of Christ, based not based on, the on work their of Christ. work. Yeah, this right. is not yeah. a this is not a salvation issue. They're not. We're not disagreeing on the sacrificial atoning work of Christ. Mm-hmm. We're, we're disagreeing on on what a Christian should eat. And right. Paul says each man should have his own conviction before God, and before God he stands or falls. Right, right. And then that I don't have to make people stand or fall before me. Yeah. Or or accept that others might want me to stand or fall before them. Um, and that 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 runs into an idol, particularly for pastors. We want our people to like us. We want our leaders to like us. We want to stand or fall before them, and particularly we want to stand. And that's a powerful, that's a powerful idol um, for those who lead in the church that they want to have an acceptance, a reception um, before their people, or before their peer group, or before their leaders. Um, and we got to be aware of that. Well, I think that's where Romans 14 actually offers a cure, mm. because it's 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 a uh, it's the salve of freedom. Mm. Mm. And so like for the that. for the pastor who looks at his congregation, he's got the he's got that opinionated fellow in the congregation or that opinionated uh, woman in the congregation, and they don't agree with him on everything. Mm-hmm. Because of Romans 14, he can say, you know what, that's okay. I don't have to be in control. God has accepted this person. They don't have to agree with every one of my opinions. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's remarkably freeing. It, it is. It's, it's, uh, for our, our listeners, um, this is, uh, you're in the midst of uh, an example of God's wonderful providence. Sean and I minister a whole country apart from each other now. We used to be within an hour of each other, but he ministers still in the Pittsburgh area, and I minister in Seattle. Um, and unbeknownst to either one of us, we've both been ruminating on Romans 14 for no good reason over the last couple of weeks. I preached on it recently, and Sean's been ruminating on it. So it's just a wonderful providence that God's been working in both of our lives through this text and, and really humbling both of us um, through it, uh, which is which is good. 
I recently preached on that text, John, in Romans 14, in the context of uh, transitioning our church to uh, weekly communion with the option of, of taking wine. Um, something that we talked about years ago on the podcast mm-hmm. um, and that you did years ago in your own congregation in terms of embracing weekly communion. Um, we're just moving towards embracing in a couple of weeks. And um, I was preaching the last of five sermons in that series, trying to help people understand why we were making the change to communion or to weekly communion, why we were adding uh, the option of taking wine to the table to the grape juice that we already had. And then in the last sermon, I did Romans 14, just talking about why we weren't simply putting wine on the table, even though it was the conviction of the, 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 the elders of the church that this is the way that Jesus instituted the supper and that we felt that it was Christ's command that we serve wine. Um, in line with the regulative principle. I explained via Romans 14 why we were keeping grape juice on the table, despite Mm -hmm. everything that I'd said in the previous weeks. And one of the things that I shared at the very beginning of the sermon, and if people want, they can go on our website and see this, or listen to this if they want to, was that one of the most arresting experiences that I've had in the pastoral ministry um, occurred when I was still uh, back in ministering in Pennsylvania outside of, of uh, Pittsburgh and um, was having some challenges in my congregation there. And uh, a good friend who had been in the congregation for about a year but then had moved, um, he and I were talking. And one day as we were discussing uh, probably a challenging person in the church or something that he knew and um, we were discussing kind of the situation that was going on, he uh, God used him to arrest me uh, with these words. Uh, he said, Matt, you do know that every single person in your congregation is exactly where God wants them to be today in their Christian growth. That's hard. And that, that's hard to take. <laughs> that hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh yeah. Because and, and that wasn't to say that God didn't have places that He wanted to take them. I, I might. Uh, you know, God loves us um, perfectly in Christ, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. He's gifted um, us with his spirit, which says there's something going on. Absolutely. And um, and that just – it just crushed me on that day because I was like – here I was fighting against God and where he had people right now. And I think that's what Romans 14 does, is it, 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 it allows us to not feel like we have to manipulate people. We don't have to judge people. We have to teach them the word of God and pray for them and trust that God is going to grow them. And simply be willing to be a tool in the hands of the Spirit and not feel like we have to be the Spirit. Um. And that's that's freeing. Uh, it's wonderfully freeing uh, if we can get wrapped up in thinking that it's something different than that. That's something that I remember uh, Eugene Peterson really uh, nailed home to me, not personally, but in reading his books, is that when when we minister to people, what we're doing is coming in at a point that God is always already working, and our role is often to... F- see how is God working and how mm-hmm. can I join with God mm-hmm. and what in, he's doing in this person's in life. what he's already doing in this person's life yeah it's not yeah. it's not it's not up to us necessarily to figure out okay what needs to happen to you now and what do, you know what book do I need to get you to read now or what uh, you know what type of discipleship training do I need to take you through now it's where are you now 
And how can I, as your pastor, be a part of what God is doing in your life? And it's true not just for a pastor. That's true for uh, any Christian toward their brother or sister in Christ. And that's not to say you're not saying that we shouldn't put people through intentional discipleship and want to see them grow in biblical ways or things like that. You're just saying that it's not our solo responsibility to see person X develop in way person in, into person Y. Yeah, oh, um, solo by, I mean, our own, we, by our own power. Yeah, we want discipleship to occur. Um, now, I tend to use the term, and I, I, as a caveat, I was using this term long before it became vogue. Um, you can, Matt will testify to this, but I really see the church as being much more organic mm-hmm. than we make it. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it functions much more like a family, like a body, you know, and no father says, it maybe in some respects, a father says, okay, kids, you know, we're going to go through this lesson, then this lesson, then this lesson. So much of parenting is, is sort of daily seeing where your child's heart is and shepherding that. Mm, amen. And so I think that's much more of what the church is than it is discipleship programs, but that doesn't mean discipleship doesn't happen through discipleship programs. There's got to be something in place. Um, there's got to be the tools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, we, we've all been in the situation where you preach the sermon, and afterwards five different people come up up to you, and they they have gotten five completely different things out of the sermon, and two of those five uh, were things you don't even remember saying, or, or didn't intend to say, and they were completely the spirit on the spot. Exactly. And those were the things that God used to minister to people. I was going to say that it, I was going to guess that it was three out of five, but yeah, you, maybe you're more. Maybe accurate. it was four out of five. <laughs> um, so so absolutely, and it, you know, and that goes back to what we said a minute ago about. Uh, freedom and the the need for control, I mm-hmm. think it's very hard for us. I think this is why we don't like getting sick. Mm. It's very hard for us to deal with losing any any gra- any any thread of a grasp that we have on on life. I think control is one of those idols that all of us share in some in, in some way, shape or form. Um, you know, whether it's you get your Some control. Some of us have made it a dominant form of life. Well, isn't isn't that what the new technology is? Um, think about it. What is the new booming technology? It's it's PDAs mm-hmm. in, in some form. You know, Apple's about to revolutionize that uh, apparently um, with with the iPad, um, and they didn't pay me to say that. But you know, they are. Uh, everybody is coming up with some way for us to get a, get a grasp on our life through a little piece of machinery that we have on our belt or in our pocket you know or or in our um or in our even in our daytimer you know they make daytimers with the little pocket for the PDA now so um so you can have both the paper a and la Sean yeah. and the electronics a la Matt there you go um Actually, I am, like, I am back to electronic now. Just want to oh, know. Oh, scary. Um, so, but but that is. But, I, so, but I think, what's interesting about that is it's a passion to organize our exterior world. Yes. Without realizing that the problem with our exterior world is the disorganization of our interior world. Absolutely. The disorientation of our interior world. Well, and the thing about the gospel is that it comes to us when we are when our interior is disorganized. 
and it remains with us throughout our life as our as the rock on which we stand because our interior in this life will never be organized well and i think it's it's reorienting too um, in the sense of, you know, you think about Paul and Peter. We were just discussing this text in one of our Sunday school classes recently. Think about Paul and Peter in Galatians 2. And you look at Peter does, and he does the inversion of what Jesus does in John 4, right? John in, John includes the, the formerly outcast, and Peter forgets that. And he's doing, you know, he's he's making new outcasts, you know, in obedience to um, um, um in obedience to the sect that came from James. Um, and so it, the way that, that Paul reorients him is that he says, you know, you're not walking in line with the gospel, which is interesting. Mm. That Peter had, although he had been the one who had received um, the message through his ministry with Cornelius and things like that, um, his his exterior life was disorganized because his interior life was disorganized. And the way that Paul deconstructs that disorganization is that, hey, Peter, you're not walking in line with the gospel. That That the gospel serves as that reorienting for our interior life that bears fruit in our exterior life. Um, you see that same thing in First Timothy one eleven. Um, you know, Piper loves that verse, and for for great reasons about the happy God. Um, but um, but from this from the gospel centered perspective, it, it's doctrine that accords that fits with the gospel. That there's no doctrine that's apart from the gospel, but it fits with it. The, the gospel f- serves as this hub from which the rest of the Christian life radiates out from. And there's, no, there's no part of our person to add to that. There's no part of our person. There's no, uh, there's no part of our life, no aspect of our life that is not to be uh, affected or um, strengthened by mm-hmm. our standing on that gospel. Absolutely. I mean, this is Luther's. Absolutely. This is Luther's. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's our only hope to face our idols, because we won't have the courage to um, to face that which we've been relying upon, that it, to which we have been directing our hopes. Uh, the way I've been saying it recently is is the basket into which we've put our eggs. Uh, we won't be willing to see that basket as messy and broken and our idolatry as foolish unless we've first gotten a fresh sight of how delightful God is and, and of how wonderful he is to have as father such that these other things that we've been relying on and putting our hopes in can fade because something that you're still relying on, you, you won't let go. I, I have a, uh, a reading chair here in my office um, that was um, a chair in my grandmother's house in the mid-70s. And when, um, when she passed away, uh, it was one of the pieces that went to my mother. Um, and then it went from my mother to me. Uh, when I moved, she was going to get rid of it. And I said, no, no, I want that piece of history. And it's an extraordinarily comfortable chair. I can sit in it for hours and read. 
Um, it's a chair unlike what you would ever purchase today. Hmm. Um, but it would literally tear my heart out to take this chair away and for me to try and find a new way of reading in my office. It's my little secluded spot that's right next to my desk. It doesn't face the computer. It's my it's my quiet place. It's two different worlds. If you're in the chair that I'm at right now in front of my computer or you're in my, my reading chair. In, in a sense, I hope without being idolatrous, I rely on that chair. And if you were to take it away without the promise of something better for me to find that secluded spot to read, um, I, it would terrify me. And I think that's the way that we are about all of our idols. When we've relied on when we've relied on something, we can't give it up until there's something else that's better to hold on to. I, I want to pick up on that word um, "better" because uh, you and well, you and I, Matt, both taught through the Book of Hebrews back when we did college ministry. We taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, we team taught through the book of Hebrews. Right, And, right. of course, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews is all about how Christ is better. Mm. He's better mm-hmm. than the sacrifices. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Mm. Yep. And and to, to draw this back to our Samaritan woman, mm. you, you said of your chair, you couldn't – I would hate for somebody to take away my chair and not give me something better. Right. Now, with this woman – she was going through chair after chair after chair. Yeah, um, yeah. But she wasn't getting anything better. She was getting same. Mm. And isn't mm. that so much of our idolatry is we might toss away this idol mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to put the exact same idol in its place. Just it's a different color. It's a different, uh, you know, it's a different texture. Um, you know, it's you sit a little bit different in this chair. Mm-hmm. And... What Jesus is saying is, I've got an even better husband for you mm. than than what you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. And and really, maybe pulling from there because there we have the distinction with the Samaritans: is the Samaritans take Jesus at his word. Mm. There there are no idols for the Samaritans. Right. I mean, they're they're leaving their idols behind. She leaves the water pitcher. Which it's interesting. John uses that the water pitcher a good deal. It's it's back at the wedding at Cana too, mm-hmm. because at the wedding at Cana it's the the ceremonial water pitchers, and now he he provides something better than the water of the sacrifice of the of the ceremonies of the washing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He provi- he provides the the new wine that that brings gladness to the heart. It mm-hmm. actually changes the heart, as opposed to the other water, which all it could do was clean. The outside of the, the utensils, outside. yeah, yeah. And so here's here's John, and he he emphasizes, you know, that here she's left her water pitcher and she runs. She gets the people. Jesus stays for two days, and then he continues on to Galilee. Mm. And here come the idols again, mm. because he shows up in Galilee, and the first thing he says is, an, a, "A man, a prophet, has no honor in his home country." Right. And then the very next verse is, and the Galileans received him. And you're going, what? What's this? What do you mean, Jesus? You have no honor. They're receiving you. And then there's a little there's subtext under there. So, you know, they received him because they'd been at Jerusalem and seen all the stuff he did. Hmm. So they were. They, they received him for his stuff. They were they were after him for his stuff. And this is this is what you and I were talking about earlier. Yeah. Is that, um, and this is how the idolatry I think ties to prayer. Mm. Is there's three okay. things that the Jew that the Jews wanted Jesus for? The Jews liked Jesus. 
for what, like you said, Matt, for what he could give them, mm-hmm. not for who he was. And in this, the the distinction there, there's a there's a a real stark contrast between how the Samaritans receive him. He says, "I'm the Messiah." They go, "Great, come on in." Hmm. Jesus comes to the Jews, and they can't even take him as Messiah. Nicodemus says, "Well, we know you're a teacher. Uh, we know you're sent from God. I'm, I'm not really willing to step beyond that in my description of you." Um. Probably because at that point, Nicodemus is, Jesus calls him later in John 3, calls him the teacher of Israel, meaning Nicodemus has some status. And right. Nicodemus isn't willing to say, Jesus, you're, even you're a better teacher than me. And, and we all know where this is coming from. John starts out his gospel with, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what we need to recognize is people aren't taking Jesus as God. Hmm. Instead, they're taking these idols as their gods. And there were three things um, I was telling you about earlier that I think we can we can pin down the Jews and say this is why they liked Jesus. And one is what we're seeing here. They liked him because he could heal them. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing would be they, they liked him because they thought he would be the end of Rome. Hmm. He political. Would, political. Yep. He would fix their failed government. Okay? Third mm-hmm. thing, and this is a little bit later in John, is uh, if you remember in John uh, chapter 6, all the disciples take off, except for the core. And uh, the reason they take off is because Jesus has progressively gotten a little bit more uh, gross in the way he's talking with them. Mm-hmm. He provides them with the, the loaves and the fishes, and they really, really like that. In fact, Jesus says to them, uh, you, you didn't believe in me because you saw signs. You believed in me because you ate and were filled. Mm-hmm. And but then when he comes and tells them, hey, you got to eat me. Eat me. Like, eat my body. Eat my what? flesh. Eat my blood. They're like, okay, that's a little, that's a little weird. We're going to go back home. Right. And so, so there's three things there. They liked him because he could fix, fix their sicknesses. He liked. Uh, they liked him because they thought he could fix his, their government, and they liked him because he provided them with food. Now, I ask you, Matt, is that not the three ways that we can, if, if we examine our prayers, if, if everybody who is listening to this podcast just stop for a minute and ask themselves the question, where do I spend most of my time praying? Mm. Not do I pray or not? Because I mean that's easy. <laughs> if I if I don't pray, um, I probably do not have a relationship with the Father through the Son. Mm-hmm. But if I do pray, prayer. What's the can, content of those prayers? What's the content? Because that can tell me how I view God and what my idols are. Mm-hmm. So mm. if I'm praying. You know, if I'm always praying for Aunt, you know, Aunt Marge's spleen and Uncle, you know, and Uncle Henry's cirrhosis and, um, you know, and my my stuffy nose, uh, and that's the focus of all my prayers. Sort of, Mm -hmm. you know, we all, our churches have prayer chains. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing that ever, almost ever goes out on a prayer chain, you never get a prayer chain saying, hey, pray for so-and-so, they just, they just came to a realization of a sin in their life. And they need to, and they're struggling with this. You never get those on the prayer chain. Prayer chain, you get, you know, so and so has a friend 
who has a friend whose daughter's going into the hospital and please pray. Mm-hmm. And and I need to say this, there's nothing wrong with praying for people who are sick. Absolutely. I don't want to give that impression at all. But if that's where our prayers reside, is Jesus to us just a a miracle worker? A because dispenser of goods. A dispenser of goods. Yeah. Second thing, government. You know, I mean, how how many American Christians today, for them, Jesus, you know, is is all about uh, dealing with our failed government. Mm-hmm. You know, and and why? I think this is this is the telling part: is why do we want Jesus to deal with our failed government? Um, it's because we want to continue having the freedom to do the stuff we like to do. Mm-hmm. That's usually what's behind that. Now, certainly, Romans 13, pray for, pray for your leaders, pray for those who are in authority. We need to be praying for them, but we need to ask, why am I praying for the government? Do I have an idol mm-hmm. here of, of peace and comfort? And I'm actually, in praying for the government, I'm actually idolizing the government. Mm-hmm. That this Thinking is the that thing. it is the one that provides real security. Yep. Yeah. yeah. R.C. Jr. Uh, just wrote a, a little thing for table. I don't know if it was in Table Talk. It was on. It was in Ligonier's blog. Okay. Uh, because the census is coming up. Mm-hmm. This and, is uh, for those of you who don't know who Sean's just talking about. This is R.C. Sproul Jr. Yes. Who is uh, R.C. Sproul, the famous uh, teacher's uh, son? Yes. And he he just wrote an article. For it was on Ligonier's blog, so I don't know exactly if it's been published elsewhere, on the census. And he made a he made a wonderful little point in that he said, um, he, he said I don't agree that it's the government's role to ask me how many toilets I have in my house. Mm-hmm. He said, but you know what? I'm going to be filling out my census. Mm-hmm. And this is why, because I believe that I am to submit to the government, even if I don't agree with that government, mm-hmm. even if that government is on shaky ground, it is my job as a believer to submit to those who are in authority over me. And I, 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 I read that and I said, well, point well taken, because um, so often we don't do that. We, we're, we're very happy to complain about the government. We're very happy right. to ignore voting. Um, mm-hmm. Although I don't know if it's a... Are we commanded to vote anywhere? No, I wouldn't say that we're commanded to vote. Um, I have preached about voting day and that I think that... If, that we need to do uh, it. That part of our... Yeah, that we need to do it. Because I think that part of Romans 13 is that you submit to the governing authorities for sure... But in a place like ours that has the blessing of being a democratic republic where we have the opportunity to elect those who will govern over us, um, we should that is a great, that's a great privilege and blessing that we should take up and run with. Well, the Constitution, our Constitution actually says that we are to submit to the census, that the government is to take this census every, right. is it seven, ten years? Ten, ten years. Ten years. Um and so, so in that sense, we, we've been commanded. Mm-hmm. And so here we should do this. Uh, so those are the first two. We, we dealt with healing with government. You know, the third one, you know, how many of us, our prayer life consists in the prayer before meals? 
um, that we like. We like God as long as He's going to be providing food for us. How many of us have lost our job, have come into a difficult situation, mm-hmm. and we've mm-hmm. said, God, why are you doing this? Mm. Well, I think I've said before on this podcast, um, you know, whenever we say, I wonder what God's trying to tell me, mm-hmm. um, my response now is, God never tries to tell us anything. God <laughs> tells us something. The thing is, we may not understand what he's telling us yet, but don't worry. When he wants you to know, you will know. Um, right. So our living through suffering, our living through discipline, our dealing with difficult times in our life is is often, as with Job, to teach us to trust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, in our good Heavenly Father. Exactly. And and as Piper says, I, I love when Piper says this, he, he says, God is doing two million things, and you don't understand half of the things that he is saying to you and he is doing in your life right now. You know, he just, he, he goes yeah. off on this issue that we just, we if, if we do not have minds to comprehend the number of things that God is doing every moment in our life with every decision we make, and yet we get all upset because we can't figure out one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... So, so is that, and, and I would encourage anybody who's listening, use your prayer life as a, uh, as a meter of your idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. L- allow God to use it to show you that if maybe you've made a God in your own selfish image. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm saying this as somebody who's made a God in my own selfish image. Yeah, oh, you know, I look at my prayers and I go, "Oh, that's where my prayers are sitting." Um, you know, you we both we all know that acronym ACTS for praying. Mm-hmm. You know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, uh, and supplication. Now, how how many of us just spend all of our time on the S, right, and give no time to the ACT? Well, and and to our detriment, because I think that when our prayers are simply consumed with not, I don't want to say superficial things, but when there isn't a component of our own interior life that we're praying for the gospel to be more uh, dominant within, um, we're blindly following idols. When we're not asking, Holy Spirit, show me my idols. Show me the foolishness of them. Show me what I need to confess and to turn from that I might delight in you and not put my hope anywhere else. Um, few of us pray that way. I've commended it to a few people lately, and they're like, Oh, you mean I should pray like that? <laughs> and and what that tells me is I need to continue to uh, to proclaim privately and publicly the glories and the wonder of the gospel, that we put Christ on display again for people that they go, oh, he is a delight to behold. I don't want to hold on to my idols. Show them because they keep me from delighting in you, God, because I'm spreading my delight out among unworthy subjects. Well, And we, if we just added praise to our prayers... Isn't that a big part of how God works in us? I, I pulled um, my three favorite definitions of prayer. You know, one of them is C.S. Lewis's um, little thing where he says, 
Uh, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because it changes me. It changes me. Yeah. So isn't that if if our prayers are to include praise and adoration? If I'm spending time just dwelling on the perfections of God, mm. on the excellencies mm. of Christ, isn't that going to change me? Mm. Amen. I mean, isn't that in in some sense going to do more in me? I'm, I'm going to walk out on a limb here. Isn't that going to do, do more for me than praying for, you know, Aunt Jessie's uh, shoulder, aching shoulder? Yeah, I mean, Piper would say, and I think rightly, um, you know, first part of Second Corinthians, maybe Second Corinthians three. I don't have the text open. You know that it's beholding glory that we become glorious, that we become like the object that we uh, are fascinated with. Delight yourself, behold. Psalm thirty-seven. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Which is, mm. it's literally, if, if you are delighting in the Lord, His desires become your desires. Right. Right. And that's that's exactly where we need to be. Let me give a little frame to this for yeah. our listeners, Sean. I, I think the reason that we wanted to spend time on this today is that typically on ordinary means, like even we've been doing with the Two Kingdoms stuff the last couple of months, we're kind of up in the sky and and we deal with, with stuff in terms of leadership of a church and having it oriented around services and a ministry model that is oriented around the ordinary means of grace. And we're completely for that. Uh, you can't go back through four years of podcasts or five years of however long we've been doing this and not get that that is our orientation. However, um, the ordinary means of grace uh, is something that's scriptural. And it's not simply something that happens in big picture ministry models or in worship services. It's the functional model of the Christian life. And what we're saying is that this ordinary means of prayer, um, it, crucial as it is in public services, crucial as it is for congregations um, to have prayer together, um, it, one of the ways that God ordinarily changes us is as we pray, and as we pray honestly uh, about our lives and our hearts. Um, and, and that's kind of without saying it, what we're pleading for, is that you as a church leader, you as a pastor, you as an elder, the way that your church is going to be infused, if you will, with prayer as an ordinary means of grace that people are passionate about to get together to pray in a prayer meeting, to pay attention during public prayers, during worship, uh, is if it means something to them the other six days of the week. And um, it's a way in which they're seeing God renovate their own lives. And so they yearn to get together to pray for each other so that God might renovate the lives of the other people they're in gospel community with. And that we get together and we pray for people that don't yet know Jesus because we want them to experience the renovation of their lives and their turning from idols just as we've experienced it. You know, Matt, that's a, that's a great point there because, um, again, I don't mean to harp on praying for people who are sick but because, again, we should be. Yeah. But are you praying for somebody's sickness – Great, but are you praying for their soul? How how much time do we spend praying for the souls of our neighbors? Mm-hmm. The you know the eternal welfare of our family. Um, that's that's got to be uh, a, the the meat and bread of 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 our prayers. Um, 
as well as the praise, as well as what you said before, you know, and I want to come back to that is the dealing with sin in our life. You know, another great definition of prayer, and I, I know you will resonate with this, but that prayer is, uh, is, is wartime tactics calling in for reinforcements. Mm hmm. You know, Absolutely. It's the guy in it's the guy in the trench laying there bleeding and all of his buddies are dead and he, he picks up the, the the walkie-talkie or the sat phone or whatever he's got and he says, you know, general, I need reinforcements. reinforcements. I'm right. dying here. And what's the death? The death is I'm being encumbered by my sin. Mm. My sin mm-hmm. is crushing me. Mm. Oh Lord, do something about this sin that so easily entangles me. Mm-hmm. I find and these that, idols that so easily entice me exactly. and speak promises to me that in my clearer moments I go, how ridiculous. How could I have ever thought that you would give me that? I have bought into a lie. Um, and we need that kind of – I need that kind of arresting. God's been arresting me like that for the last couple of months, and I'm just blown away by the things that I've put my hopes in. And they've been dashed, and they always will be because they're creatures, and they can't hold the weight that only the creator can. Absolutely. And that's really, that's, I think you're giving me some great segues here. That's the third definition of prayer. Okay. Is that we're never going to pray unless we're discontent. Mmm. Prayer is discontentment. Wow, that's good. It's discontentment with the status quo. And mm. as long as we're happy and comfortable, and this is why, again, I think why we pray for the government oftentimes, mm-hmm. is we like, we like that comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, we like you know the the, gov- the government stimulates us mm-hmm. um and and we like that and what we need is a little more discontentment in our life and mm-hmm. the kind of discontentment where like that samaritan woman we go you know what if i just throw away what's contenting me right now i'm going to just end up picking up something else that's going to content me in the same way Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to throw away this chair, I'm going to get a new chair. I'm going to throw away this husband, I'm going to get a new husband. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to throw away this uh, this idol of uh, comfort and wealth, and I'll just pick up another one somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Keller, Keller highlights early on in Counterfeit Gods um, that we can have a couple of different reactions to our, uh, to our idols. Um, one is to try harder. You didn't do a good enough job at it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is, or, or another one is just to get cynical. Mm-hmm. There's no satisfaction to be found ever by anybody. Um, the other is, uh, the third one is uh, to swap idols. What, what you've been saying today, and the fourth is to turn to Christ. Mm. And that that uh, all the other three is most of what consumes our lives. We're either trying to find a new idol. Um, to put our affections on that we think can deliver us hope, meaning, satisfaction, security, fulfillment. Um, or we, we give up any hope that life could have any of that, meaning, satisfaction, security, or fulfillment. Uh, or um, that, um, that it can be found somewhere else, some other idol. I'll just swap. That I, I, it wasn't that I didn't pursue um, uh, this idol enough. It's that it was the wrong one. And um, if I pursue this one, then then it will um, uh, it'll satisfy. Uh, instead of just saying I was made for you, I've got a hole in my heart until I delight in you, and you're my only hope. I mean, you know that last one you mentioned. I'm starting to call that um, a video game mentality hmm. uh, because 
a, a mm. video game gods because I don't know if you've you know for me Matt one of my guilty pleasures is I I do enjoy picking up a uh, a video game now and then and all thieves beware Sean has an Atari oh you know what I gave the Atari away I gave Did the Atari you? away to a little boy. In our church, so maybe I'll go over to Congratulations. his house. Congratulations, that's really good. Him. Yeah, let's go to his house so we can uh, visit so it. we can play. So um, it was an Atari twenty six hundred. Pay homage I, to the idol. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the um, the idol of the joystick. Um, but what if you've ever played video games? You know, and I'm, I'm I know I've just cut off half of our listeners. But if you've ever played video games or if you enjoy video games, you know that what you do end up doing is you play it for a while, and then you get bored with it, and so you just mm-hmm. hop over to another one. Right and and whenever you start like whenever you buy a new video game or whenever you start a new game you haven't played before go back to a game you haven't played in a while there's always this sort of rush of ooh this is exciting this is a new adventure mm-hmm. um, I think that this would be comparable to um, I, I do, as much as I love books I think books can be an idol mm-hmm. and there are, sure. there are those for whom they pick up a book and oh this is a new adventure and mm-hmm. this. Um, and this book is going to provide me with the with the insight that I need for my life to change. That's for those who are reading nonfiction. Um, for those who are reading fiction, this book is going to provide me with the escape mm-hmm. that's going mm-hmm. to you know grant me peace. And what do you do when the book's done? You you know you put it on the shelf. You take it back to the library. You get another one. Right. And it's because you've invested your hopes in that in practice. something which cannot. And there's see, and that, this is the thing. And I think we've we've addressed this a little bit as we've looked at the two books, mm-hmm. as we've looked at cri- the intersection between Christ and culture. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the stuff of Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus doesn't say to the woman at the well, "You should never get married." Mm-hmm. Uh, because yep. there's nothing wrong with having a spouse and enjoying them. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with um, reading a good book and enjoying it and mm-hmm. enjoying the creativity put into that book by somebody who was made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that's one of the things that struck me. I was um, I was uh, playing a video game recently in which you're walking through this three-dimensional world. And I think more than the game itself, I was completely blown away by by the way they had created a world that that was in a sense an art form mm-hmm. it looked like this world mm. and I, and I had to stop for a moment and say you know the the okay the geeky part of me said said what kind of algorithms do you put together to make a tree sway in the wind like that right and yet right. here I am looking at on it at it on a computer screen and then I turn and I look out the window and it's doing the same thing the tree outside the window's doing. Or, you know, you, we all know for those of us that love movies, how long did it take them to get water down as a, as a computer-generated element? Mm. You know, that was the hardest thing for them to do was water. But mm. now you see some of these movies and you go, that's amazing. That's yeah. not real water. Right. And right. what it should do is say, is point us back to God. Mm-hmm. We should enjoy that. We should enjoy that art form mm-hmm. um, because it's downright amazing. It is that a mere image bearer creature could mimic what God made so well. It, it reveals the creativity not just of the person, but who's the kind of what 
godlike that he can make people like this? What's his creativity like that he can make people who can figure out that algorithm? So we don't want to worship if it's a book, we don't want to worship the author. If mm-hmm. it's a, if it's a video game, we don't want to, you know, worship the video game company. If it's a movie, we don't want to worship the director. Well, because those would all be idols. Mm-hmm. We would be worshiping the creature rather than the creator. What we want to do and this is this is why we were talking about prayer. This is why we're talking about idolatry. This is what we want all of us to do with our heart. Is that we want to look and see what those idols are, and then say, "How do I move beyond this idol to worshiping the God who really is powerful in this situation?" And and really does uh, this goes back to, to Romans fourteen, who really does care about me, who's accepted me mm-hmm. even in my mm-hmm. sin, and mm-hmm. then. John 4, and this is probably where we need to end today, but Mm -hmm. John chapter 4, um, the people are receiving him because, the the Galileans are receiving him because of what he can offer them. And Mm. the Capernaum official comes to Jesus and he says, will you heal my son? Jesus rebukes him and he says, will you only believe if I show you a sign? Mm. And then you know what Jesus does? He heals his son. Matt, despite that, his idolatry, despite his idolatry, he heals his son, and at the end of the passage, it says, "And this man believed he and his whole household." Hmm. Um, hmm. That God not only accepts the irreligious Samaritans, the unclean Samaritans, he hmm. also accepts idolatrous religious people. Hmm. He also Praise accepts the Lord. self-righteous people who only pray <laughs> for stuff they want. That mm. Jesus loves them too, and, and in fact, and He sent His Son precisely because we are that kind of people. While we were, and, in our, the- and our only, and our only hope would be if He sent His Son for idolaters like us. While we were yet sinners, mm. Christ died for us. Mm. Well, mm. I, I certainly hope that this podcast has been of uh, great benefit to you, our listener today, and we encourage you to write and tell us so. Uh, on the on the blog, if you've got questions, put them up on the blog. We haven't had a Q&A session for a few months here. We'd love to do another one. And uh, we certainly hope that you will continue to listen, tell others about us. Uh, that's why we're here, to be of uh, pastoral service to the body of Christ in, in some little way with this podcast. So as we leave, may the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. Mm-hmm.